This is the Better Bible Reading Podcast with Kevin Morris, episode number nine. Welcome to episode nine of the Better Bible Reading Podcast. This is Kevin Morse, and I mentioned to you last week that I was excited to share the news that my website has been changed. It's been changed from scriptandsong.org to betterbiblereading.com. And at the time of this recording, I actually still have both of those domain names, so you can find me at either one. I'm still in the process of swapping over everything from the older website to the newer one. Uh, it has been a little bit more of a process than I originally anticipated. But anyhow, just wanted to throw that out there for those of you who might not have listened to last episode. The good news is that I have a better Bible reading website name, which matches this podcast. So here we are in episode nine. Today, I wanted to talk about a follow-up idea to what I mentioned just a couple episodes back. A few episodes back, I talked about the Bible as a library, and we walked through literally from Genesis all the way to Revelation and talked about the different genres that are found in the Bible and how our Bible is categorized kind of the same way that a library is categorized. When you walk into a library, you want to go to the right section, you want to go to the right genre, and that's exactly how our Bible is laid out. And today I thought it would be good for us to think about the Bible not only as the genres that are found, but more specifically, the writing styles that are found within the Bible. So today we're going to start the first of about five episodes or so talking about the writing styles of the Bible and this first episode, I want to talk about the writing style of narratives. Now, narratives don't always relate directly to the Bible when we think about the Bible. One of the reasons for that is because when we hear the word narrative, a lot of times we think about storybook, we think about a play, or even even a movie script. We think about, in other words, something that a writer is basically inventing or structuring themselves or making up, depending on what way you want to describe it. But those of us who are conservative in our theology, which means those of us who believe the Bible to be true, not a fictional writing, want to be careful about the words we use because we don't want to suggest or give in to the idea um, that the Bible isn't historically accurate. But I want to encourage you today that just because we want to uphold the fact that the Bible is historically accurate doesn't mean that we should downplay the writing styles that are found within the Bible. Because the Bible is is true and glorious and perfect, not only in what the Bible says, but how the Bible says it. In other words, the communication methods that God has decided to utilize throughout the human writers of the Bible that are found in the different books, Genesis, 1 Samuel, Proverbs, the Gospel of Mark, etc., etc., that you find different writing styles all within the different books of the Bible. And these are good for us to think about because if we want to think about the way the Bible is written, we should first come to the conclusion that the text of the Bible is just that. It's well written. There's not a wasted word. There's not a wasted transition. There's not detailed information that should have been in there, but it was left out or something like that. Everything that we have in the Bible is within God's good and right and wise purpose of communicating his truth to us, right? That goes all the way back to a previous episode when I talked about the Bible as God's revelation to us. It's all about communication method. It's all about the, the content and the context of what God is wanting to say to us. And that certainly includes the writing styles that are found within the Bible. 
So we'll we'll kind of unpack that in more detail as we look at the different writing styles. But as I said, this first one we want to look at is the writing style of narrative. So when you think about the Bible, what parts of the Bible would you consider narrative? Well, in some sense, we could say that just about every book in the Bible is narrative in some way, shape, or form. I want to refer your attention briefly uh, to a book that has been actually really helpful to me. I I read it about a year and a half ago or so in uh, one of my um, college classes I was taking. And the book is called Reading Biblical Narrative, an Introductory Guide. It's written by a man of the name J.P. Fokelman. And I want to say this up front. Theologically speaking, I don't agree with this man because this man is what you would call a liberal theologian. And that doesn't have anything to do with political party, but it has everything to do with the way that the Bible is understood. So this is a man that would grant that there's many details in the Bible that are not true. There's factual problems with what one author author says to another author. And so he would deny the inspiration and infallibility of the Bible, which is historically speaking um, an absolute necessity for us to to hold as Christians. There's not any room for us to admit that the Bible has errors because the moment that we do, we, we then have no basis to decide what is true and what's not true. We become our own judges of the Bible, and then the, the whole thing comes crashing down. So anyways, that's a whole other conversation. But I wanted, to, I wanted to be careful of my endorsement of this book, if you even want to put it that way, because I, I want to throw, throw that out there and make sure that I communicate that I, I don't agree with everything this man says. However... In terms of textual analysis, in terms of calling out key parts of writing styles within the Bible and narratives in particular, this book has been incredible and very helpful for me, actually, to take some of the um, advice of what this man has to say. Now, Again, I want to emphasize the advice I don't mean is when he says, well, this this part isn't historically accurate. The advice is really getting down to the root of, number one, admitting that the Bible is well-written, which he would certainly agree, well-written. But that means that one of the most important goals for us is that we want to read the Bible well. Uh, he makes the point of saying that the, the best-known books – are not always the best read books. And if there's one thing that we as readers of the Bible want to make sure that we're doing properly is to read it properly. There's so many times that we come to the Bible and we don't read it properly. We we read it out of context. We read it without paying attention to the key clues that are given to us. And we, we want to make sure we don't do that, right? This is better Bible reading. We want to implement those better techniques, those better methods, and that certainly includes here reading biblical narratives in in a proper way, that method of communication, that writing style. And so, again, we want to admit that the text is well-written, and our goal as readers is pretty simple in terms of reading. I'm not talking about in terms of applying the truth of God's Word. I'm not talking about living in accordance to God's Word, but just if we strip everything down just to the, the the reading and the writing method of the Bible, our goal as readers is to find the meaning in the text. I can't stress that enough. So there's a few examples of how that could fail to be the case. One example is modern-day preaching what we call prosperity preaching is an example of finding meaning outside of the text. And of course, when you go outside of the text, the only thing that's left is the reader. So 
this would be common in a prosperity sermon <clears throat> where whoever it is that's preaching will refer you to a text of scripture and then proceed to preach a sermon or message that has absolutely nothing to do with that passage or or even uh, when it comes into the idea of, of false teachers, uh, a false teacher will use a passage to prove the exact opposite of what the passage is actually saying. Another example would be kind of in the academic world, um, but honestly, even finding its way into Bible studies and, and everyday interactions uh, with the Bible. And what I mean by that is in the academic world, you have Bible commentaries and study Bibles and kind of introductions to particular books of the Bible or introductions to the New Testament. And all, all of those are good, but we, we have to realize that there is a there's a level of subjectivity because what any given writer is doing is telling you what they think the Bible means when it says this or that. And quite often in, again, liberal theology circles, it's very popular to use the Bible as kind of just a, just a rough skeletal framework and then basically go beyond what the Bible says to argue that this passage in Matthew, Jesus is really wanting to talk about social justice or even socialism and economics. And obviously when you're reading it, it has absolutely nothing to do with that, but the writer takes it into their own hands to say what it means. And then in kind of Bible study circles, uh, there's a there's a uh, popular um, message that um, a man by the name of, of Al Mohler, who's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he says, uh, talking about the philosophical school of postmodernism, he says that our modern day Bible studies are postmodern Bible studies, and what he meant by that was that. In Bible studies, everybody's sitting around a table or sitting in a circle or whatever, and it's very common to go from one person to the next person to the next person and say, what does this text mean to you? What does this text mean to you? And everybody kind of gives their meaning of the text. Nine times out of ten, every meaning contradicts the other meaning or has absolutely no relevancy to the previous meaning. But at the end of the day, everybody's right. Nobody's wrong because it's just a matter of opinion. Well, that's certainly not what we want to do. And the way that we want to fight against that is finding meaning in the text itself, not inventing meaning, not using the text as just a launch pad to our own ideas, but sticking to it. That's God has communicated to us in his word that we would read it and understand what it says not move on to bigger and better things. And if we want to keep that principle in terms of biblical narrative, the writing style of narrative, there's two elements, <clears throat> or two categories that I should say, that J.P. Fokelman calls out in this book, and I think that they're really helpful when we think about reading the Bible. And those two elements are, number one, language, and number two, time. So just want to spend a few minutes thinking about both of those. And really, this, this is a, a bit of a kind of rigorous exercise of, of the mind, right? This isn't just kind of an everyday casual conversation. We're talking about kind of the, the mechanics of reading the Bible. Uh, we're talking about things that you don't normally like say to yourself when you're reading the Bible, Oh, I need to pay special attention to the language being used. Oh, I need to pay special attention to, to time frame elements, right? We don't say that. And we, we shouldn't say that we want to have, you know, we want to have a natural or organic process when we're reading the Bible. We're not trying to be, um, 
academic students every time that we pick up God's Word, because at the end of the day, we're we're communing with God, right? We're not in English class, not in history class. But yet again, we as cognitive beings, we as human beings with the ability to reason and take in information and process information, that this really is inescapable. We do this with literally everything. You read billboard signs. You read menus when you go to the store. You watch people's mouth move when they're talking to you. You're listening with your ears. You're seeing with your eyes, right? Everything we're doing is receiving and processing information. Well, when we're reading the Bible, we want to do the same thing, and it in no way downplays the truthfulness of the Bible. In fact, what it does is it allows us not to miss the truth, not to miss the things that God is saying to us. So uh, I hope maybe thinking about it that way will help you to be engaged in this episode a little bit more and, and realize that this is not the end, but it is a means to the end, namely of understanding the Bible, understanding God himself. So the two elements, language and time, we'll take that first one, language, and think about that for a little bit. I alluded to this a little while ago, but we want to think about narrative as what exactly God is communicating to us in words, not just in concepts, not just in the final analysis fill in the blank one answer word, but the whole scope of what's being said. That might sound completely weird and unintelligible. So let me try to let me try to do a better job of, of telling you what I mean. So if I were to ask you what is the point of Genesis chapter one, what would you say? Would you say it's to prove that man was made for woman and woman was made for man? Would you say it's to prove that the earth is not billions and billions of years old, but several thousand years old? Would you say it's to prove that God created the heavens and the earth in seven literal days, if we count the, the day of rest as part of those days, so six days and one day of rest? Would you say it's to prove that snakes are bad? <laughs> Would you say it's to prove that there is an order to everything? What would be your answer? Everybody has an answer. Then my follow-up question is, how did you come to that conclusion? Well, the only possible way you could come to any conclusion is by referring to the language used. I mean, this is completely elementary, and I'm not saying that we're dumb if we don't understand this, but I'm just saying this is absolutely basic to any form of writing at all but especially to narrative, because the whole point of a narrative is to tell a story, to communicate a story. If you think about a good play, one of the things that we really enjoy, if if you're somebody that does like plays, or you think of even like reading somebody like Shakespeare, one of the things that's really interesting is the order of events, right? The rising action, the climax, the the warning signs that are given early on. You know, all, all these things are communication methods, and all of these things are the language in the narrative, in the storytelling. <clears throat> and that's what we find in Genesis. So the answer to that question depends on what you think is essential in the language 
being used. Well, the good thing about the Bible is that we're not left in the dark. I think one of, one of the one of the best examples of how we kind of get these clues here and there about what the Bible wants us to understand in terms of narrative would be the example in Genesis chapter 2. So I'll come back to Genesis 1 in just a minute. But Genesis chapter 2, when it starts out, it says this. I'll just go ahead and read the first four verses, and then I'll do a little bit of uh, explaining. So it says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Verse 4, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So that last verse there is what we would say is an example of key language in the narrative. Now, if you follow biblical discussions, you'll know that one of the arguments between those who hold to some kind of evolution method of creation and those who reject it really comes down to how somebody interprets Genesis chapter 2. The argument goes like this. Well, Genesis 1, this is somebody who would hold to to uh, evolution, either theistic evolution or even natural evolution w- without God's hand um, working in, in a particular way. Here, here's what I mean. The argument goes like this. Well, Genesis 1 is just kind of, generally speaking, what eventually happened. But we know that Genesis 1 uses symbolic language for the six days of creation and the day of rest. And we know that millions of years are happening throughout what is found in Genesis chapter 1. So... Mankind is mentioned in kind of a prototype phase in Genesis 1, and then you get to Genesis 2, and you have yet another man and woman. So the, the argument is kind of strange because in some, in some circles, uh, they would say, number one, that there, there is no historical person named Adam. Adam means man, so whenever you see the word Adam, it's just generally speaking representative of all mankind. And what they're getting at is through evolution, mankind eventually comes to be as a species, as a creature. So there's not just this one. There's eventually mankind is how kind of they would say. And one of the ways that they argue that is because they say when you get to Genesis 2, you have something different happening from what happened in Genesis 1 when we read about God creating mankind. I think it's a loose argument. There's certainly a lot more to it than than how I just explained it in kind of brief terms. Uh, but the counter argument is this, and this is where it gets uh, kind of to the heart of the issue in terms of language and narrative, is the argument is this on the side that would, number one, reject um, theistic evolution, and number two, uphold what the Bible says, frankly, what it says plainly in Genesis 1 and 2. It would say, Genesis 1 is kind of an aerial snapshot view of what God has done in the whole scope of creation. Then you get to Genesis 2, and it moves to a kind of a ground-level view, an in-depth observation of what took place when he created man. So it's not as if we get to Genesis 2 and suddenly we're talking about something entirely different from Genesis 1. It's really when we get to Genesis 2, um, the Bible, if you will, kind of zooms in and keys in on the creation of man already explained 
in Genesis chapter 1 and explains how it is. And that key verse says in Genesis 2 verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And of course, as soon as that's said, then the text moves into describing the Garden of Eden, describing man being put in the garden, and then going into the particulars of what man was ordered by God to do. And then you get to Genesis 3, then you have the fall of man, etc., etc. But the point I'm making is in that fourth verse, the Bible gives that key language in the narrative to call our attention to what's being described and what we need to look for in the in the following verses. And that's a very small example, but that's precisely what's happening when you read the Bible and when you and when you read narratives in the Bible. No word is wasted, if I could put it that way. Um, Paul says to Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out, God-breathed, and profitable for teaching. We, we often use that verse to argue the fact that Scripture comes from God, therefore God is perfect, and Scripture is perfect because it comes from God, so it has no error. And that and that's a very fair way to argue from that text. But I would also say that that text emphasizes the all scripture as not just what's in the Bible, but how it is communicated to us, how it's said. That would mean that if God chose to use narrative to communicate to us, that was a better decision for that instance than it was to describe it to us in a parable or in poetry or in a prophetic utterance. And that's really one of those things that we want to look out for every single time we read narratives. So I mentioned that when we read narratives, it's not isolated to just one book of the Bible. It's not as if these are the narrative books and then there's nothing else that's narrative. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Like I said, almost every book is narrative in some way, shape, or form because a story is being told to us. Now, you certainly have books that are more narrative in nature than others. Uh, for example, Genesis is almost exclusively narrative. Then you have the next books in the Pentateuch. Remember the first five books of the Old Testament. When you get to Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, especially Leviticus and Numbers are very heavy in the law and in kind of genealogies and calling out family, clans, and tribes. So those aren't necessarily as much of a narrative um, in in nature. But then there's breaks, even in those books, there's kind of breaks from the the genealogies and breaks from the, the big sections of the law, and then it'll tell a narrative. It'll tell a particular instance that was happening. Then you have a book like like Esther, and Esther is entirely narrative. I mean, it just reads like, like a, like a novel almost, um, the way that it's written. It's a beautifully written book in the old Testament. And it's, it's a very good one to, to follow and, and read, um, as you kind of see the order of events happening. But you know, narrative is not only isolated to the old Testament. It's also in the new Testament. Even the Gospels, if you want to say the Gospels in one sense are their own genre, but in terms of writing style, they're very much narrative in in content. Um, you even see, um, in terms of thinking about language, the Apostle John in his Gospel, towards the end of it, actually gives us a glaring clue as to 
kind of the point that we should be taking away from the text as we read it, and that that is he like literally says, "This is why I wrote the gospel." He says, "There's a lot of things that Jesus did, and if I would have taken the time to include everything that he did, the, the entire world couldn't hold all the books that would be written for it." So. What he's saying there is, if I wanted to just detail every single thing that happened, then I would have to write book after book after book after book. But there's a theological decision being made. There's a selectivity, if you will. And that is, God has a very particular purpose that he wants to teach us and tell us in John's gospel And John says, these things were written that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that salvation is found in faith in him. And that's, again, what is that? That's language. That's language in the narrative. Remember, when we're reading narratives, our goal is to find the meaning that's in the text, And what's essential for us to understand are the particular details that the text provides. Well, that if we want to play detective, that would be one of the most easiest cases to solve in the history of all cases, because not every author in every book of the Bible tells us, here's the absolute takeaway that you should have in this book. We got to do some digging, we got to do some studying, but In terms of the Gospel of John, there's just literally no question. If we want to say, well, what is the main goal of John in this narrative? What what is the main thing that the narrative is telling us? And John says, literally, here is why I wrote this. Well, that's the answer to the narrative question. And it's found in the language of the book itself. In this case, the language is a clear, explicit answer. It's not always that way, but it is in that case. Even the book of Revelation that is entirely apocalyptic and prophetic and references back to the Old Testament again and again, even that is narrative because a story is being told to us about the victory of Christ over evil, the sure judgment of all the ungodly, in the promise of eternal life and reign of God's people with him forever. That's that narrative that's being told to us. And you can see that because the details in the language in that book are given, kind of scattered all throughout. There, there's another uh, concept that when we when we think about the Bible as a whole being narrative, there, there's a phrase used, a theological phrase, and that is meta-narrative. And it's not an exclusive to the Bible phrase, but when we think about the Bible, it certainly does relate to the Bible. And all meta-narrative means is the overarching story. We know that there's 66 books in the Bible, each one for its particular purpose, particular writing style, particular communication method. But in the diversity, there's also a unity. And that unity is that meta narrative, that overarching story being told all the way from Genesis to Revelation. We know that because when we get to Genesis 3.15, after mankind sins, after Adam and Eve sin in the garden... God comes and pronounces the judgment against the serpent. He pronounces the curse of sin against Adam and Eve. But then he gives a promise of victory, that there's going to be one who comes from the seed of the woman and crushes the head of the serpent. And from that point on, that promise is being traced out all the way through the rest of the Bible. Then you have glimpses and people looking for that in the Old Testament. When you get to the New Testament, Jesus is the promised one. That's 
right? You get to the Gospels, everybody is asking, is this the one? Is he the promised one? And the answer, of course, is yes. Get to a book like First John or a book like Hebrews, and they say explicitly that the reason that Jesus appeared, the reason he came was to destroy the works of the devil. And that refers back to that promise that he would crush the head of the serpent. Jesus beats Satan in the uh, temptation that he went through in the wilderness when Satan um, enticed him to basically give up his messianic purpose of coming to the earth. And Jesus defeats him. Again, a reference back to the fact that he would be victorious over Satan. And surely when we get to the book of Revelation, everything comes full circle, the promise is fulfilled, and we see how that looks at the end of it all. Well, all of that is possible because in the narrative, in the story being told, we are given language. We're giving we're being given important clues that tell us the big idea. If you want to put it one way, these are small clues scattered all throughout the Bible that tell us the big idea. And it's not hard to connect them. It doesn't take a PhD. It doesn't take this profound scholar. It just takes us paying attention to what's in the text and deciding what's essential to understand by saying, what does the text provide? If the text provides it, it's essential for us to understand. There's not a wasted word. There's not a wasted phrase. There's not a wasted book. There's not a wasted chapter. Everything is important for us to understand. So we just want to read carefully. We want to pay attention to what's being said to us. We want to read it carefully. We want to understand it. And narratives in particular give that to us, give those details to us by the important language used and language used over against a different option. One of the examples that I could say before we move on to the second idea in terms of time is that when we're reading the very well-known and very sad day for King David when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then to cover up his tracks tried to get her actual husband to sleep with her. After that didn't work, then he had him sent to the front lines of the war and he ended up being killed. Well, one of the things that happens in the very beginning of that chapter in Second Samuel is we're told that just, and it's just a quick thing told to us in passing and basically it's this, that this event happened when King David was at his house and it was during the time of war. Well, that tells us right off the bat, just that little piece of information, that little bit of language in the narrative, tells us that David should have been, as commander of the army, he should have been out to war with everybody else. It doesn't tell us why he was at his house it doesn't tell us what happened that led up to that, but it does tell us that everybody else was out fighting and he was not. He was hanging out on his rooftop. One thing leads to another. He sees Bathsheba. He brings her into his own house and then commits adultery. Well, clearly the text is telling us this whole thing started because of the fact that David wasn't even out with the rest of his army to begin with. It's a small little clue, but again, that narrative is getting us into a frame of mind, telling us to think a certain way, giving us those little details, and it's given by that language. We ask the question, and we should ask it again and again, why did the author decide to include this piece of information? And there we go. That's how it plays into it. Tons and tons of examples all throughout the Bible those are just a few really brief examples. All right, let's go to the second and final element that I want to talk about in narratives, and that is the time element. 
So a lot of times you think about, let's go back to Genesis 1. Think about this. How long would it take you to write a seven-day memoir of this last week that you experienced? And by the way, you have to include every single detail that happened, that you witnessed, that you experienced. And go. That, that would be an impossible task. I mean, how would you even begin to do that? That would be an, an impossible task. Well, what if, the flip side of that, what if I said, in one page, give a seven-day memoir of, of your last week that you experienced? Well, you're now limited to one page. You're going to be completely conservative in, in what you say, right? You're not, you're not going to... You're not going to want to include everything. You're, you're going to try to get the the big takeaways and touch on the big story, the big picture of last week. You see that the difference in those is, number one, the selectivity of what you say, and number two, that you're compiling a lot of detail about a long time span, and to be fair, a week's not a very long time span, but if you think about every single thing that happened in that week, that that's a long time span in terms of events. But suddenly, you're having to consolidate that into one page, and one page is not equated with time, it's equated with length, but again, we're thinking about reading so reading automatically is equated into time, not length. What I mean by that is you are telling me last week of your life consolidated into three minutes. Let's just say I read one page of writing in about three minutes. That means in three minutes of time, I am gathering information about seven 24-hour days of your life. Now, what that means is you're going to be very careful when you write of how you transition things, talking about day one of last week in your life to day two to day three. You're going to be careful about how much time you spend talking about Monday of your week to Friday of your week. You don't want to take half a page to talk about Monday because then you only have half a page to talk about the other six days of the week. So you're going to be very careful. Well, think about Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is the six days of creation and the seventh day of rest going into Genesis 2. Well, the author does not include every single detail, but the author does give us, number one, that language element, the first thing we talked about, of what is included in detail, but number two, the time element. How does it transition from one day to the next? Well, in Genesis 1, it's a pretty consistent narrative because at the end of every single day, you have, and there was evening and there was morning the first day, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Those are clear indicators of, of a time reference, of a time transition. But we don't always have that. Because when you read the book of Exodus, 
the whole wilderness experience during the life of Moses is explained to us in just a few chapters. But we also know that in those few chapters, 40 years of wilderness wanderings are given to us. And then especially once you get to books like First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, the lives of the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel are given to us. And we have that family tree of this king lived and reigned, then he died, then his son lived and reigned in his place for X amount of years, and then he died. Well, some kings reigned for 40, 45 years. Some of them reigned for two years. And the author includes various amounts of detail for each king. If you think about like King Hezekiah, King Hezekiah has several pages of detail in his life. But then you have other kings that have one paragraph. And that one king that has one paragraph doesn't necessarily mean that he only lived for two years. Some of them may have lived for 30 or 40 years reigning as king. And there's not much to say because the takeaway is he was evil and did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He reigned for 40 years and then he died. So what I'm saying is we should not always equate length of writing with length of time. That sounds like a, a pretty clear, again, just like the language idea, that sounds like a, a pretty elementary concept. But when we think about narrative, the story being told, the details being given, we want to ask again, why is there this amount of information included? Not just how much information, but what the information actually is. There's another passage in the Bible that's really related to the idea of language and time, and it's a narrative account. And that narrative account that I'm talking about is one of the most well-known narrative accounts in all of the Bible, and that is Abraham and his son Isaac going up to the mountain, and Isaac being almost sacrificed by his dad, Abraham. There's a lot of detail given in that, and it's important for us to realize that all of that detail takes place in just a few days. And in those few days, there's a lot of things happening. There's a lot of ground being covered. There's a lot of traveling happening. There's a lot of things happening in it. And what I'd like to do is actually refer you to an article that I wrote. This was back in December of last year. And the article is, interestingly enough, Biblical Narrative Passages, and the subtitle being How to Find the Small Clues that Tell Us the Big Idea. And what I do in this article is I literally take what we're talking about today and walk you through from beginning to end how we can implement the idea of understanding narrative passages to understand this particular one of Abraham almost sacrificing his son Isaac. And when we think about that story, there's a lot of things that happen. And honestly, there's a lot of things that we miss. If we wanted to say, what is the goal of that narrative? What's the takeaway of that narrative? What are some context clues of that narrative? We, we might have different answers depending on how many times we've read it, how familiar we are with the order of events. And one thing is for sure, that is certainly a narrative passage. And again, what I want to do is refer you to that article. I don't always do this on the podcast because, again, I know that people like different learning methods. That's the whole reason that I created this podcast, because I know that not everybody likes to read articles. But in this case, I do want to refer you to it because 
there there's somewhat of a disconnect if we can't see the text in front of us not every method of learning how to read the bible equates to just listening to a podcast episode certainly there's a lot that i was able to cover in this episode but sometimes it's good to kind of read because again we're talking about reading the bible and reading narrative passages in particular and what might be the most helpful to do that is to actually read an article about narrative passages, kind of have your Bible in hand, because what we do in that article is I basically tell you to turn to Genesis 22 and just walk through it with me. I think you'll really enjoy that, and I think it'll kind of help that that light bulb moment come off, come on rather in, in your head um, as you think about, okay, how can I, everyday reader of the Bible, how can I understand the narrative passages realistically? And I think that as you read that article, walk through Genesis 22, you'll come away with a clear example of how to do it from start to finish. And I think that it will really help you as you go to start reading other passages in the Bible, other narrative passages, and start asking those important questions. The, the two elements that are most important for us to understand is the, the language element and the time element. So there's particular language being used that we want to pay special attention to, and there's time references that we want to pay special attention to, not just the word days or eight hours or anything like that, but the amount of time used to explain time frames to us. Again, the way that we would say that is, how long did the writer take to explain these eight years to us? The answer might be one paragraph. The answer might be one sentence. The answer might be three pages. But all that is important because it really amplifies for us where the meaning is at, where the big clues are at. And that will all lead to understanding narrative passages in the Bible. So that's all I got for us today. I hope you really enjoyed this episode, and I hope that as you think about the writing styles of the Bible, that you're going to be able to come away from this episode with a clearer understanding of narrative passages, and I hope that you're encouraged to go and start learning how to understand them because the Bible is full of them. So next week, we'll start back again talking about another communication method found in the Bible, another writing style in those genres. And I hope to see you then. So you can find that article. You can go right now, you can go to scriptandsong.org slash biblical narrative passages. There's going to be a link, a link that I can refer you to on betterbiblereading.com. But for now, the quickest way that you can get to it is scriptandsong.org forward slash biblical narrative passages. This is Kevin Morris from the Better Bible Reading Podcast. 